Hello everybody. Hello Ben. I'm Ben. I'm part of the church here at Ebby. Um, this morning we're continuing our series in Genesis. Um, and we're looking at probably one of the most difficult and potentially troubling passages I think you can find in the whole Bible. So that's fun. Uh, so before we start, I just want to sort of acknowledge that and say that I think it's important that we kind of go gently with this this morning. Um, uh, this passage kind of deals with, with violence towards a loved one, uh, and that can be quite distressing, and I just want to sort of name that up front, and if you need to step out at any point, that is totally fine. Um, there'll be a couple of points where I'm going to get you to do some talking to each other, and I just ask that when we're having those conversations with each other, that you be gentle in those conversations and, and how we listen to each other. And don't just sort of take this as a, as a fun story to mess around with, because it can potentially be quite distressing. So, with all those uh, caveats in mind, I'm going to read the passage now. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Okay, so um, as I said, there's a lot to process there, a lot to kind of get our heads around. God demanding a bloodthirsty show of loyalty, like some sort of mafia boss. God maybe changing his mind, or did he lie in the first place and sort of going, oh, I was just kidding, Abraham and playing some sort of grotesque game with the life of an innocent person. Abraham being told that he's brilliant for rushing to make the sacrifice that God just told him not to make. Abraham seeming to go along with all of this without even seemingly stopping to think. Uh, sort of technically, well, I guess all's well that ends well, ending to the story, but why did the story even need to start in the first place? I think it's totally natural to have loads of questions about this story. And I think there are two common, that says responses, I think there are two common immediate responses to this story, and maybe you found yourself in one of these two camps as we were reading it then. Uh, the first one says, this is a no-brainer. God said it, I believe it, that settled it. This is a really simple story about someone being brave enough to do what God told them to do, even when it seems really unthinkable. Great. What a great story. The second common response, and it's basically the exact opposite, is to say, this is a no-brainer. God just commanded somebody to kill an innocent person. You don't have to do an ethics and morality degree to know that that is an evil act. This is a story about a cruel and dangerous God, and it needs to be thrown in the bin, and you need to have nothing more to do with anything about this. You know? And I can see why both those answers come up, why both of them feel appealing, but ultimately I don't find either of them satisfactory as a way of dealing with the text. I think they're both sort of pat answers, quick answers, uh, and in particular, I think neither of them does justice to how Hebrew narrative and scripture works, and I think they both leave open a risk of doing harm. So, I don't think, uh, so, I think the Bible is way more involved and rich and complex than one-dimensional statements for you to either agree or disagree with. Um, and both of those answers reduce this story to um, just a one-dimensional do I agree or disagree with the morality of this act and I think biblical stories are doing way more complicated and involved things than that. I won't go into loads of depth on that now, I've spoken on it a ton of times before, if you want to go dig through the Ebony archives you're welcome to. Um, but basically anytime anyone turns a Bible story into, well here's the one line moral takeaway, I kind of get a bit um, But also, and maybe more seriously, I think both those extreme answers 
end up taking the nuance and therefore our responsibility and attentiveness out of the equation. In both of them, I said, oh, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, God says it. Or it's a no-brainer, I just know how to be good. And in both those cases, you're kind of checking your brain out and not taking responsibility to, um, uh, to be attentive to each and every situation on its own terms. You end up saying, well, as long as you can put God says so before any statement, then it's fine. And we don't need to go looking much through history to see all the harm that can result from that. But in the other answer, the I just know answer, you end up saying, well, as long as I just know what's right and wrong, then whatever follows that is fine. And again, we don't need to go looking through history to see uh, that you know, people have just known things to be right and wrong all through history that have led to terrible harm. Uh, so I don't think either of those are adequate. And we have to continue to be attentive to a world that keeps changing and will always ask us new questions. So quick pat answers won't cut it. So I'm not happy to stand here and say either of those, either great, let's unquestioningly accept this story on its face, or this is terrible, let's throw it in the bin. But so if neither of those two extreme answers cut it, where do we go instead? I think there's actually loads of room in between those two positions or sort of off at right angles to them or just on a whole other kind of plane of a map where there are more interesting things to say that do more justice to the complexity of the story and that do less harm, leave less room open for, for harm. Uh, and what I really want to do is invite you to think a little bit about what some of those more imaginative, alternative possible ways of engaging with this story might be. I'm going to chuck it over to you in a minute. Um, to get you started, I'm going to give you three kind of prompts, things you might not have noticed as we read through the story that might help open up those possibilities. But these are just three that I've picked basically at random from hundreds. There's all sorts of details. What I really want to do is just give you permission to know that it's okay that if you read that story and it makes you uncomfortable and you go, I, I'm not sure, I've got questions, I want, to, I want to wrangle with this, that's okay. That's more than okay, that is good and that is welcome um, and that's, that's a, a constructive thing to do. Uh, so you can start putting your thinking hats on now before I make you talk to each other. <laughs> um, but here's three starters that might just have evaded us as we read the story from five seconds there. Okay, so the first thing you might not have noticed is, have you spotted the similarity between this story and the one pretty much just before it in Genesis 21, the account of Hagar and Ishmael? If you go back and read Genesis 21, you'll see there's a striking amount of parallels between the two stories, uh, that God orders Ishmael's expulsion in 21 and orders Isaac's sacrifice in 22, that they take on more food or sacrificial material, that they go on a journey together, that Ishmael is about to die in the same way Isaac is about to die, and then an angel of God calls from heaven, and then an angel of God calls from heaven, and then there's an instruction about fear, and then God says that he's been heard, and then there's a promise of being made into a great nation, and then there's the eyes being raised, and you see an alternative provision, a well in Agar and Ishmael, a ram in Abraham and Isaac, and they finish with, taking, yeah, the, they take a drink from the well, they sacrifice the ram instead. Amazingly, kind of beat by beat, similarity between those two stories, with one, at least one interesting difference. Hagar 
in the Hagar account, sobs. She thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And we don't see any of that in Abraham's account. But maybe this is actually a story about Abraham and Hagar and comparing two people's reaction to a situation. Maybe, maybe that's going on in there. Secondly, you might not have noticed, but the words change over the course of the story. So uh, it doesn't always come out in the English translation, but there's actually two names for God used in this story. There's Elohim and there's Yahweh. Haven't got time to unpack all of that now, but sometimes Elohim is translated as earthly judges. Sometimes there's lots of thought about what Elohim and Yahweh might mean. Might they even be the same thing? So maybe this is actually a story about a power struggle between two powers. Uh, the son whom you love, the story starts out talking about Abraham and Isaac, the son whom you love. By the end of the story, whom you love has gone. That's not there anymore. And in Hebrew narrative, the things that change and go missing are important. So maybe this is actually trying to highlight something about this story speaks to a lack of love on Abraham's part. Similarly, it starts out talking about how the two of them walk together. By the end of the story, they just walk together. The two of them has gone. Maybe it's a story about a broken relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Maybe, maybe that's in there. Thirdly, maybe it's a story about actually what's missing and what's not there. Again, these can often be significant in, in Hebrew storytelling. A thing that I think is really obviously missing, a thing that Abraham himself has done only a few chapters earlier in Genesis 18, is wrangling with God, pushing back on God, asking questions of God. When God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham remains standing before the Lord and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Far be it from you to do such a thing. And then God seems to change his mind. And we see Jesus doing the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asked God to say, if you are willing, please take this cup from me, speaking about his crucifixion. I don't want this to happen. Please change it. There is a whole biblical precedent for pushing back on God and saying, please think differently about this. And it doesn't happen in the story of Abraham and Isaac, even though we know that Abraham knows that you can do this because he did it himself. So maybe it's a story about what's not there. Like I say, that's just three examples amongst potentially hundreds, but just to give you a flavour of the fact that there's way more than those two quick pat answers that we can get into. So what I want to do now is just ask you to take a minute or two, turn around maybe in groups of like five or six, have a chat with the people around you, and see if you can hear from each other some other interesting wild card possibilities. Where does your gut instinct take you on this story? What's the question that you've got? You have permission to not just go for one of those two simple answers. Is that all right? I'll give you like two minutes.
Okay, it's starting to get to the kind of noise levels that make me uncomfortable. It's too quiet. So let's wrap it up there. You can carry on those conversations uh, after the service or in your own time if you want, but I'm glad that some of you had something to say to each other. Uh, one more question for you, and this is a genuine one. That is kind of, that's most of the time that we've got, but I haven't told you my take on the story yet. Will you indulge me in a few more minutes in what jumped out to me when I was looking at this story, or do you all need to go home and get your lunch now? Carry on. Okay, all right, I'll try and do this fast. We can do a longer version another time. Okay, so, oh, there's some prompts. I should have left those up for you. Um, that's all nice and well and good, and isn't it interesting that we can do more things with the Bible than we sometimes assume? Good. But I feel like, and Stu touched on it this morning with the welcoming spaces stuff, at the moment, the world needs us to do things. The state of the world calls for action. So what do we actually do from this story? And I'll do a super quick version of the thing that jumped out to me from this story that informs how I think we ought to do things. I wonder if this is a twist in the tale telling of a story, where you take a usual pattern and then divert it at the end. This is something that happens elsewhere in Genesis. I won't just pull that out of my head. Uh, things like the creation account and Noah and the ark they kind of take other stories that were familiar in that age and they run alongside them, but then they do something different to show how this God is not like that God. And I wonder if there's a bit of that going on in the Abraham and Isaac story, that there's a twist in the tale and that it kind of invites the imagining of another mountain. That on this mountain, where the God demands a human sacrifice, you take the human sacrifice up there, but then the God doesn't accept the sacrifice and the human lives. But it invites the imagining of another mountain over here. The mountain where the God does take the sacrifice and Isaac doesn't make it back down. Where the God demands life and takes it. And if we're horrified and, and troubled by the, the Abraham and Isaac version, this mountain over here, then the one where the God demands and takes the sacrifice is even more scary, right? Where the expected ending happens. Um, I could say Genesis does do that, and we, we kind of shrink in horror at the idea of a merciless God, a God that wouldn't show mercy. And that is scary, but what I want to say is that mountain exists, the mountain of the God that demands and takes exists, and more than that, we walk up it every day. We walk up the mountain to try and appease a God every day that asks and does take and literally will take the lives of our children. And that merciless God, again I'll do this really fast, is called growth or greed. Economic growth, the constant need for more, we've always got to have more. Let me show you really quickly how it works. The merciless God growth demands always more. Small is not good enough, got to get bigger, got to get more, got to have more, got to have more than them. But eventually, you hit a point where there's no more to take. There's no more to grow into. The resources are finite and we hit the limits of it. And what do you do to appease the God growth then who demands always more? You can't make the pie any bigger, so your only choice is to start taking from other shares of it. You, the only way you can pretend that you're appeasing your growth is to sacrifice other people's resources, to take it off somebody else. It's not growth, it's theft. 
And if you don't think that is happening in the world today, it's scary how much this is the thing that I think underpins everything that is happening. The whole of societal approach is built on making sacrifices to appease the God growth. The God growth doesn't stay its hand. The invisible hand of growth keeps taking and taking and taking. And you can see it everywhere. Uh, this, there was this news report the other day, animal populations decreased 70% in 50 years. Basically, the time I've been alive, three quarters of animals on Earth are gone. And look at the destruction of this habitat. That's because we're taking from each other, we're taking from the world under our feet to try and appease the God growth. We've got a record number of billionaires, with 16 million people living in poverty. The rich are starting to take from the poor because there's not enough resource to go around, and we're sacrificing those with least to grow, the few with most to appease the merciless God of growth. This is 10 years' prediction of how much of London will be underwater. We're literally taking up the space from under our feet. You know what's going to happen. Everyone's just going to go on a mad rush to get out of Lambeth and Barking and Stratford and into the few bits that are remaining, trample over each other as we go. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's not enough resources anymore. Guess we'll just take it. This is the rise in hate crime in the UK over the last few years. I think they're all symptoms of the same thing. Why is hate crime on the rise? Because we've got to find more people to take it from. There isn't enough anymore, so I've got to start finding other people, people who I can minoritize and take from, because I've got to grasp to make sure I'm the last man standing to appease the merciless God growth. And it just keeps taking. It never stays its hand. It takes, and it takes, and it takes. That is the other mountain that this story brings to mind for me. There's some good news that I want to end on. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way. That is how much of our society works. We walk up that mountain every day. Sometimes we're Abraham. We're the one holding the knife, taking from somebody else to appease the God of growth. Sometimes we're Isaac. We're the one tied to the altar, pleading for our lives as growth comes to eat from our heating or our finances or our ability to eat. This system is everywhere. Everyone walks up this mountain, but they don't have to. We don't have to. We know about other mountains and other gods. We don't have to stay on this mountain sacrificing to the God of growth. We can come back to the mountain of the merciful God. And we know about the call of the way of Calvary, the mountain, the hill of Golgotha, where Jesus is crucified and then is resurrected. And I think this is the most urgent thing in the world as Christians at the moment. The most urgent thing we can do is to be challenging that fundamental mindset. We know a different way than the merciless God of growth that takes and takes and takes. We know that God doesn't have to work that way. We need to live into it and show it to the world. Basically, the whole rest of the Bible, anything you can read, I think you can look through this lens and see it there. I could show you a hundred different things. We haven't got time. We don't need greed. Philippians talks about valuing others above yourselves, looking to, not looking to your own interests, but to those of others. Put others before yourself. Where the mountain of the God of greed says you've got to take so that they can't have it. The call of the cross of Calvary says if it comes down to me or them, it's them. If it's you or me, it's you. I'm going to put others before myself. And it breaks the back of the relentless God of greed. Yeah. That's why Philippians talks about God seeing power not as something to be grasped, 
We know that we can afford to give our lives away because we're in service of a God of endless resources. We're not fighting over a, a shrinking pool. We can be different. The last shall be first. That's why I've always come back to my granddad used to tell me uh, the only thing people need to know from church on a Sunday morning is that they are completely loved by God always. And sometimes that sounds a bit trite, but actually I think it's the most powerful thing that people need to know right now because it breaks the back of that need for more. Yeah. If you're already completely loved by God, why do you need more? And we can live on a different mountain. Last thing I promise <laughs> is that is not easy to do. It's easy to say. It's easy to paint the picture of the merciless God of greed and the merciful God of Jesus who finds a different way. There isn't a zero-sum game where we can put others before ourselves. Easy to say. Not easy to do. Because the whole world is built on this mountain. That's what church is. That's what I think we do here. Is how do we help each other live on the mountain, on the hill of Calvary, and not on the merciless mountain of greed? How do we do that? How do we help each other practice and build for and understand and have faith in certainty of things unseen? We can't see that every day. But we can build the, the, the vision of faith that helps us to live on that different mountain. So I'm going to chuck it back over to you to finish. And I'm going to ask you that question. And I want us to ask it collectively. What do you need? What would help you from the church, from this group of other people trying to live on that mountain? What will help you stop climbing up and down the mountain of endless growth? and start walking more and more up and down the mountain of the merciful God that puts other people first. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you need help to see it more? Do you need your material provisions met? Do you need training? I don't know, what is it? What do you need from each other to live more on this mountain? Mm 